Chapter Nine of the Reign of George the Sixth, nineteen hundred to nineteen twenty-five, a forecast written in the year seventeen sixty-three. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine, A.D. nineteen twenty-one to nineteen twenty-two. State of the Kingdom. The Parliament meets. Arts, sciences, and literature. Academy of Literature. University. Gardens of Stanley. Public Works. Manufactures. Prosperity of the American Colonies. After such great fatigue as the King had suffered in the last campaign, it may be supposed that he longed to enjoy a situation of peace and tranquillity. And it is very remarkable that no man ever knew better how to taste the hurry and noise of war, or the ease of retirement. He was equally calculated for both but he was too good a politician to disarm himself as soon as the peace was signed, a conduct which has often been fatal to conquerors. Never were measures taken with greater prudence to secure possession of the kingdom he had conquered. He knew that all Europe looked at his victories with the utmost jealousy, and sickened at the verdure of his laurels. He was fully persuaded that the late peace had only given time to his enemies to prepare more effectually for a fresh war. The Spanish monarch, at once inveterate and formidable, he foresaw would aim at a second alliance against him. Therefore, as his situation was so critical, he determined to leave as little as possible to chance, but to keep himself always ready for action. This plan was most easily executed, for although Great Britain still felt the burden of a prodigious national debt, yet the Parliament granted him very ample supplies both to carry on the war in France and to build new ships, repair others, to sink docks, and make harbours. The King's designs on France indeed had raised some heats in the House of Commons, but these were all blown over. The vast splendour of success reconciled every mind to the measure, and what had no little influence was the economy of the King. They found that the supplies they granted were applied with the utmost fidelity to the uses they were intended. They expected at the opening of the session, after their congratulatory addresses were passed, to have many demands for securing the vast conquests which the king had made. But they were much surprised when they found none made. The Lord High Treasurer informed them by the king's order that the establishment in France would fully support itself, and pay off all the arrears of the army. This was most agreeable news to all who feared the immense expense of keeping that kingdom. Only 40,000 men were voted, therefore, as the standing troops of Great Britain, and 10,000 in Ireland, 30,000 seamen were demanded and agreed to without opposition, and 5,000 in Ireland. The other services were all supplied with ease, cheerfulness, and alacrity. But there was one circumstance which pleased the King in this, as in some other sessions, its meeting at Stanley where he had summoned them. He there found himself in the midst of his own creation, and was never so well pleased as when he was engaged in raising noble piles of architecture, in conversing with men of genius, and planning further establishments in favour of the arts and sciences. Had the other princes of Europe been possessed of such a philosophic disposition, George would never have attacked his neighbours. He was far more pleased to be at the head of an academy at Stanley than of a victorious army conquering a great kingdom. Four years were now elapsed, footnote, 1921, in footnote, since George had been able to attend to his buildings at this noble city with that care and oversight which he desired. His residence there was but by snatches, 
He now and then caught a month flying, but the city was much enlarged in his absence. He had entrusted the management of the buildings to Gilbert, but every one who built houses was left at liberty in every point but the front. The sight of every street formed a regular one, and fancy itself could not form an idea of anything more truly magnificent than all the streets of Stanley. They exhibited all that was great and elegant with the utmost variety that genius could invent. And as this superb city was evidently become the metropolis of the three, or rather four, kingdoms, the streets increased prodigiously. Most of the nobility and gentry spent their winters at Stanley, the seat of everything that could charm the wise, the rich, and the luxurious. London was already degenerated into a mere trading capital, and the king was every day planning the removal of those offices which it was in his power to transport to his favorite city. His Majesty ordered Comins, the architect, to draw the plan of an edifice designed for the chancery. That ingenious designer brought him the sketch of the building as it now remains, but it was not equal to some other works at Stanley, nor indeed to several churches of Comins' raising in which he was peculiarly excellent. Yet the chancery is a very noble building and does honor to its author. It contains immense apartments for the several courts of law. But the grand design which drew the attention of the whole kingdom was the Cathedral of St. John, now building under the care of Gilbert. That great man, whose invention perhaps was never exceeded, was indebted to nothing but his imagination for the design of that astonishing edifice. Its architecture, grandeur and extent, far exceeds St. Peter's at Rome, and it is certainly one of the greatest monuments of George's magnificence, and even a wonder of the world. In the year 1921, Stanley, besides this superb cathedral, contained forty-three parish churches, many of them famous over the whole world for their architecture. The city had grown to be four miles in length, and near as much in breadth. Among those glorious establishments which reflect so bright a luster on the reign of this great king, one of the most distinguished was the Academy of Polite Learning. It was certainly very wonderful that all the kingdoms in Europe should have their academies near four centuries before Great Britain, but George supplied the want of everything that reflected an honor on his country. This noble institution consisted of a president and of a number of members which was not fixed. The former had two thousand pounds a year and the latter three hundred each. The first creation was of twenty-three members, and perhaps no period of time can display a brighter union of geniuses. The most distinguished were Howe, whose essays, letters, discourses, and poetical pieces gained him such a great reputation both for his learning and genius. He was the president. Reynolds, whose tragedies are so famous, Young, the comic writer, Price, the author of our British epic, Miners, Wilson, and Philipson, all wrote both admirable tragedies and comedies, Walpole, whose sketches on many subjects are so elegant and pleasing, Krauss, Charlton, and Earl in history. Charlton's history of Britain was perhaps never exceeded. But it would be tedious to name all their celebrated works, which are now in everybody's hands. Never was any institution better calculated for refining the English language or for promoting literature in all its branches. The prizes which were every year given for the best tragedies, comedies, and essays on a variety of subjects, at the same time that they raised a spirit of emulation, were a means of enriching the votaries of genius. George was solely bent on rendering the city of Stanley the steed of everything that was either useful or elegant. The Duke of Suffolk, his favorite minister, hinted to him one day in conversation 
the foundation of a university. The king considered of the scheme, and liking a plan that would adorn the city with so many noble buildings as the colleges, determined at last to put it in execution. The Academy of Architecture furnished plans, and the king gave each member a noble opportunity of rivaling each other. The author of each plan that was approved was permitted by the king to be the architect. Nothing could excel the magnificent establishments which were made in favor of this new university. The professors, masters, etc., were all appointed with the utmost consideration. None but men of unblemished morals and great learning were advanced to any posts in it. Scholars, not only from all parts of the king's dominions, but from all Europe, flocked to be admitted in the University of Stanley, which had many advantages that could be enjoyed by no other. What still increasing their ardor was its economy. The bounty of the king made it one of the cheapest seminaries for the education of youth in the world. No plan could have ornamented Stanley with a greater number of noble edifices. All the colleges, but particularly St. George's, are admirable and perhaps the world cannot boast such a number of buildings with so few faults. St. John's is the worst, but St. George's, of which Gilbert was the architect, is inferior to no edifice of its kind in the world. But while these celebrated piles of magnificence were raising, the king was employed some part of his time in laying out the gardens of his palace. He neglected any such additions for some years. The woods which almost surrounded him were of themselves so beautiful." but at last he formed the scheme of sketching gardens equal to his palace. He drew several plans himself. These amusements and employments were worthy such a monarch as George, and no man could succeed in them better. Behind the palace the vast woods of oak and beech almost joined the building. The king laid out a grass lawn to the back front half a mile long and a quarter broad, and round it to a considerable distance made it beautifully picturesque. The appearance of art was entirely banished. Nature was never forced, but assisted. He dug an immense piece of water, of one hundred acres, and raised a mountain by it, which is certainly one of the most beautiful spots in the world. By means of a prodigious quantity of masonry he formed many precipices, which in some places almost hung over the water. These were covered with mould to a great depth, and the whole hill presented the view of one beautiful hanging wood of beech here and there adorned with a little temple or spire peeping just above the trees, which made the whole most beautifully romantic. From off the hill was seen at some distance a noble prospect, and you looked down on the lake surrounded with woods and lawns. Nothing unnatural was seen throughout the whole garden. No studied magnificence, very few fountains but many cascades, which tumbling down artificial rocks, lost themselves in meandering currents through the embrowning shades. In this beautiful garden there was scarcely one straight walk except the grand lawn above mentioned. Everything was irregular and natural. In many places sheep and other cattle were feeding, and as many foreign birds and harmless beasts as possible were procured to run about the woods which were full of hares, rabbits, and pheasants. In short, this garden, which may be considered as a work of eminent genius, was formed on the mere plan of guiding nature. The grass was almost everywhere kept in excellent order, but the woods had no other improvement but the intermixing of the most beautiful flowering shrubs irregularly amongst the trees, and instead of letting the surface be generally flat, hills and a thousand imperceptible variations were made to render it more pleasing. The water naturally ran in one channel, but the king threw it into many, 
and it fell down a variety of cascades, but all without any appearance of art. Never was anything on the whole more beautiful or more truly picturesque. These gardens, which were about five miles in circuit, may be considered as the finest in the world, and far beyond those celebrated ones of Versailles, of which historians speak so highly. But it was at the same time highly to this great king's honour that his amusements did not encroach on his more important occupations. George was not only magnificent but humane. His attention to those establishments that only advanced the national glory did not call him off from such as were dictated merely by his benevolence and humanity. The unhappy found in him their best comforter, the poor and needy their surest support. At the time that he was raising palaces and founding academies, hospitals of all kinds were reared with liberality and magnificence throughout the kingdom. The scheme and execution of the country hospitals were the effects of his goodness, nay, the very plan was his own thought. Whatever county would raise half the necessary sum for any of those seminaries of the poor or miserable, the king granted the other half. Happy nation, to have such amiable qualities mixed with the more dazzling brightness of their monarch's mind. Twenty foundling hospitals were erected at his sole expense in different parts of Great Britain and Ireland. The hint of these useful foundations was taken from one that was established for a few years in the reign of George the Second, but it came to nothing for want of proper care. However, those raised by the king proved to be, and now continue, most excellent establishments. Before the year 1925 His Majesty had built, and either wholly or in part endowed, thirty-five hospitals. Nothing was omitted by George that added to the strength and security of his kingdom, which he considered equally with its ornament. Vast works were raised at all the seaport towns in Great Britain and Ireland to defend the coast from all insult. Docks for building ships were made at every place where there was a sufficient depth of water. New men of war were constantly building in them and old ones repairing, so that he was at all times prepared to wage war on any sudden emergency. Vast arsenals and magazines were erected at all the most distinguished harbors, Plymouth, Milford, Chatham, Hall, Edinburgh, footnote, this does not argue much topographical knowledge of the Scottish capital, but Leith is no doubt meant, in footnote, and Cork, might separately be considered as real wonders of strength and greatness. Each of them was capable of fitting out a greater fleet than any single kingdom in the world. Besides these, there were many ports of less consequence for the building and rendezvous of small men-of-war and frigates. The coasts of the two islands were almost entirely surrounded with works which were at once their ornament and defense. Rivers that formerly were almost useless were now navigated by large barges which increased the trade of innumerable towns and raised in many places new ones. Canals were cut which joined rivers and formed a communication from one part of the kingdom to the other. The spirit of trade attended these prodigious works. Villages grew into towns and towns became cities. An infinite number of manufactures flourished all over the kingdom. None were so inconsiderable as not to enjoy the king's patronage, who examined into the minutest branches, and by the vast and penetrating capacity of his genius, attained a full comprehension of most arts. He understood their interests and knew when and how to promote them. By these means he raised and supported them at a small expense, and did as much real service to trade with one hundred thousand pounds, as many princes and even great ones have performed with treble the sum. 
but the immense region of country which the English possessed in North America was what most extended and forwarded the British manufactures. The king was their sovereign of a tract of much greater extent than all Europe. The constitution of the several divisions of that vast monarchy was admirably designed to keep the whole in continual dependence on the mother country. There were eleven millions of souls in the British North American dominions in the year 1920. Footnote. In 1899 the population of Canada and the United States is about 75 million. End footnote. They were in possession of perhaps the finest country in the world, and yet had never made the least attempt to shake off the authority of Great Britain. Indeed, the multiplicity of governments which prevailed over the whole country, the various constitutions of them, rendered the execution of such a scheme absolutely impossible. Footnote. Sad words to read when we consider that the colonies were to be goaded into revolt within fifteen years, and to be an independent state ere twenty had elapsed. In footnote. This wide extended region which increased its people so surprisingly fast was far from being forgot by the king. Many noble harbors were surrounded with towns and made naval magazines. A prodigious number of ships were built by order from Great Britain and the Royal Navy itself boasted many very fine vessels that were launched in America. In a word, this was the Augustan age of Great Britain. The fictitious times which received their being only from the imagination of poets were realized in this happy country. It seldom or never happens that a period in which military glory is carried to its greatest height is also the age of happiness and plenty. But this was the case in the reign of George the Sixth. Britain, at this golden era, was at once glorious and happy. End of chapter 9 Recording by Philip Gould